Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Secularism. This is your hostess, Annie Sepukaya. Today we are talking to Adam Lee, author of the new book, Daylight Atheism. Adam Lee is already well known in the atheist community as the writer of the popular blog by the same name. In this book, Adam states his case for atheism, which he feels has much to offer the world. Speaking out against the notion that atheists should be ashamed and keep their opinions to themselves, Adam outlines his arguments as to why non-believers are, in fact, quite brave to be so in a society that so aggressively pushes faith as a virtue. In Daylight Atheism, he exposes the reasons why he believes religious belief is harmful and why the world would be better off without it. Hello, Adam. Hi, Annie. Nice to be here. We are talking to you about your new book, Daylight Atheism. You are already a popular atheist blogger. Uh, what made you decide to write this book? Um, well, this this book has kind of been in the background of my writing for a long time. Uh, the reason I originally started my first website was just to record, almost for my own reference, all the thoughts i had been having about atheism, sort of to help me integrate this worldview that I was developing. And the book is just sort of an expanded version of that thought process. I kind of picked the essays that I've written that I thought had the most influence on me or that I've heard have had the most influence on others and just try to expand on them together into a coherent argument from start to finish and release it in the hopes that maybe some people will find it helpful in a way that, you know, to make it a resource that I wish I would have had when I was going through this transition myself. Right. So you were not one of those people that were raised atheist. You also went through the deconversion process? I wasn't raised religious per se, but I wasn't really raised atheist either. Um, I guess I would say I was raised nothing in particular. My parents always just kind of left it to me to make up my own mind. And I was, I guess, vaguely religious or at least deist until my freshman year of college when a couple of things happened in my life that started to give me doubts, mainly just had to do with meeting um, some very fervent religious believers and realizing the harm that religion could do to people's lives, sort of inspired me to question uh, my own beliefs that I had never really given much detailed thought to before then. Right. One of the, the big things about the first part of your book talks about well, mainly how religion is, uh, is harmful. So can you tell us just kind of some of the ways that you believe that the world would be better off without religion? Sure. Well, my main argument, I think, is that religion encourages people to think in terms of, to think of morality better, not in terms of human well-being. So you can justify the most appalling violations of people's rights, the most horrible violence, and you can defend it by saying, well, it's God's will, and that's all the defense you need. And I think for that reason, religion is, is intrinsically harmful, because when it does produce good results for human beings, it's only by coincidence, because the well-being of humans is not the primary goal. I think the world would be 
better off if we all relied on a moral system that took human well-being into account as the, the first and most important thing, and really the only fundamentally important thing. I think everything else is only important in terms of how, it, how well it promotes human well-being and happiness. Right. You actually do have uh, a whole part on what you think would be a useful uh, morality code that you call universal utilitarianism. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, what that basically says is just, this is just my personal musings about what I think morality should consist of. And I'm not claiming this is something completely brand new or innovative. I think many people have thought along similar lines in the past. But my argument is that morality should consist of, first, uh, what harm or what um, happiness you produce by your actions in the, in the present, in the immediate sense, and also what the consequences would be to society if more people were to act the same way in those circumstances. So I think it's really a balance of the potential versus the actual, and that there are cases where you might be able to realize some immediate gain in happiness by violating someone's rights, but in the long run, if everyone acted that way, it would be destructive to society. So I think we should act in a, a sort of morally sustainable way in the sense of not just promoting well-being in the present, but also in the future. Right. You actually talk about something you call the prisoner's dilemma. Could you explain to us what that is? Sure. I found that to be an interesting story. Is that something that you created, or is this a well-known oh, no. concept? Oh, no. It's a, it's a well-known philosophical thought experiment. Um, the idea behind the prisoner's dilemma is that you and one other person are accused by the police of committing some serious crime, and you're interrogated separately. And the police, the policeman who's interviewing you says, well, if you will cooperate with us and testify against your friend, then you'll get off lightly and he'll go to prison for a long time. But if he testifies against you and you stay silent, then you go to prison for a long time. Of course, if you both uh, hang tight and neither of you will talk, then they can't really convict you at all. And if you, um, if you both betray each other, then you'll both go to prison for a medium amount of time. And the idea of the prisoner's dilemma is that it really encapsulates situations where individual selfishness results in um, an overall worse outcome for everyone, whereas if people had cooperated, they would, have, they would have all have been better off. And I think most moral systems can be framed in terms of a prisoner's dilemma, because most moral dilemmas are really a question, fundamentally a question of, is it better to cooperate with others and work together with them, or is it better to betray others and to act in a way that's selfishly best for me personally? And I think in the long run, people, you know, if you really study the logic of the dilemma, you'll see that the only way you can get the best outcome is by cooperating. Just like in the original prisoner's dilemma, the only way you can go free completely is by cooperating with your friend and not testifying against him. Right. One of the things that people always say when uh, atheists claim that, at least some atheists claim that religion, the world would be better without religion in it, uh, people bring up instances where atheists have done terrible things. Um, you know, Hitler, who apparently wasn't even an atheist, but, you know, he loves, people love to label him. always for being one, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Stalin, communism, etc. So you have a couple of reputations for that in your book. Sure. Well, certainly atheists are not, you know, morally perfect, far from it. I think that if more, then it would certainly eliminate one of the main reasons for people treating each other badly, which is religion. But that's obviously not the only reason. People will, will always find things to fight over if it's just land or 
or uh, you know riches or or whatever resources. But I think the, in the case of communism specifically, which I deal with in my book, the most relevant the most relevant reply you can make is to say that communism, in certain senses, was not that different from a religion at all, in that it put forward the set of like dogmatic principles that everyone was expected to believe, and no one was expected to question about you know the ultimate triumph of communism and the moral uh, fallibility of capitalism and such. And really, in the whole point of communism is that the triumph of communism was historically for and no one could question that on pain of being thought a traitor. So really, in, communism is very much like the secular equivalent of a religion, because it requires this unquestioning belief. And the communist regimes actually did persecute people who were atheists who questioned their central premises. So I think in that respect, the real danger, even more fundamental than religion, is just dogmatism and the refusal to question potentially harmful or erroneous beliefs. And I think, you know, obviously it's not good enough to just say everyone should stop believing in God. What, what I really want is for people to become more reasonable, to be willing to think uh, critically and skeptically and to question established beliefs. And I think if you do that, the rejection of belief in God and of traditional religion will just follow automatically. Right. How is atheism not anger at God? <laughs> well, if you're angry at God, then necessarily you believe in God, so you're not an atheist. Um, there's one analogy I like to use, that if you, were, if you were angry at, say, a famous villain in a movie like Darth Vader, you know, would it make sense to say you hate Darth Vader? I mean, I don't, I don't think that really makes any sense. You can't hate a fictional character, but you can condemn the moral attitudes that are taught by that story and that are embodied in that fictional character. So I think when atheists criticize holy books, we're not really saying we believe God exists and we're mad at him because we think he did these horrible things. We're saying that this is a fictional character that sets a bad example for people. Because if more people behave as God is said to behave in these holy books, this would be an incredibly violent and chaotic world. Well, and something that you point out quite a bit in your book is that whenever... Christianity is accused of, of being a violent religion, there's always people who say that, well, actually, the Bible is a religion of peace. You know, the Bible um, is supposed to be, you know, the moral guide, and people just don't follow it, or people interpret it incorrectly, and, you know, you're painting a very broad brush, and most religious people aren't like that, and etc. What do you have to say to those people? Sure. Well, the second chapter of my book is all about this argument. And what I have to say is that contrary to popular belief, um, the Bible is not a very peaceful book at all. M much the contrary. The verses that people you normally think of and cite to prove that the Bible is a peaceful book are very much cherry-picked. And that the verses that are far more common are verses that call for all sorts of bloodshed and hatred and intolerance. I mean, the Old Testament in particular is really just one horrible, bloody story after another where God commits violence on people because they don't believe the right things, or even worse, he tells people to commit violence against each other because they believe the wrong things. Like one of the stories I write about the most is in the Old Testament book of Joshua, when the Israelites came to the Promised Land, there were people already living there, the Canaanites, but they didn't believe the right things. So God said to the Israelites, this is your land, so everyone who's living there right now just kill them. Kill men, kill women, kill children. Don't show them any mercy. You have to wipe them out so you can take over this land. And this is just a, a horrible message to be 
delivering, you know, and then to turn around and say that this book is the epitome of peace and justice and moral goodness, I find just unbelievably absurd. Yeah, I, I, how does that happen? I mean, how how is it hailed as such a peaceful book if, you know, just opening it up kind of proves the contrary? I mean, I don't see how you could misinterpret um, a line like that. I mean, I haven't read the Bible all that much, but the quotes that <laughs> that you uh, that you shared are not really oh, this could totally be interpreted as peaceful. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> oh, it's very straightforward. And I think this is not more widely known is because most Jews and Christians have never read the Bible. And I, I believe I mentioned early on that I think the percentage of people who, you know, who actually can, who know things about the Bible, who can put even Bible stories in order or name some of the basic Bible books, these percentages are very, very low throughout the Western world. I kind of say that belief in the Bible is a mile wide and an inch deep. And I think the funny thing is that as an atheist, I actually urge people to read the Bible. I think they should know, I think everyone should know what they're talking about. And if they want to go on believing in it, then I think they should know exactly what they are believing. But a lot of people who are now atheists have said, the first step in my journey to atheism was reading the Bible and realizing that it's not what I had been told it was. Right. Well, a lot of people do say that uh, the Old Testament is quite violent, and they'll concede that, but they say the New Testament is much better, and that Jesus brought a message of peace and redemption. And you say that's not true either. No, it's not. I think part of this just derives from the cultural context. Um, when the New Testament was written, the Christians didn't have their own armies, they didn't have their own country. They were a small and vulnerable sect in the midst of a very large and powerful and quite brutal empire. So, of course, the first, the first uh, books and the first writings of the New Testament are Christians saying we should be very peaceful, we should keep our heads down, we shouldn't make any trouble, because they would have been wiped out if they had said anything else. Uh, uh, once Christians gained secular power in the West, they were quite happy to use that power to commit atrocities of their own. But really, in a sense, the New Testament, strange as it sounds, is, is far worse, because for all the atrocities that it records, the Old Testament never even considers the idea of punishment beyond death. It was the New Testament, and it was Jesus, the supposedly peaceful moral philosopher, who introduced into Western thought the idea of eternal suffering after death, and not even for people who committed evil acts, but simply for people who believed the right things. And I think really that, that in itself is a worse message, even than the genocides of the Old Testament, that simply not believing the correct things about God, even if it's your no fault of your own because of where or when you were born, that that's a crime worthy of eternal torture, which is just an idea I find un unimaginably cruel and immoral. Right. What do you think of those people that, and, and there are a lot of them I find, that you run across them and they're not Christian, but they admire Jesus. This is a common thing that you hear sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes I, I feel like they're just afraid to say they're atheists, or they think that um, by saying that they admire Jesus, that means that Christians will be less, you know, disliking of them. What do you think? Oh yeah, about? I think I, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. That people Christianity has so much cultural power in our society that even people no personal believe it still feel compelled to say they admire the teachings of Jesus. Which I think, again, you know, it's a matter of cherry picking. I think there are some good things to be taken out of there, but there are a lot of bad things too. And it's not just hell. I think it's also as much about what he didn't say as what he did. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus is never heard saying, you should set your slaves free. 
Um, on the contrary, there's a, a parable where he compares God to a slave owner who beats his slaves for not obeying him. Nice. He never really says, yeah, very moral. He never really says anything about the inferior status of women. I mean, there's a couple verses that people think maybe are kind of hinting at it, but he never comes right out and says women are equal to men. All these things that he, all these evils of the day that he could condemn and doesn't. And I think that the cherry picking is a big part of that. I think people want to believe that there is something worth worthwhile, worth reading about the Bible, because if there wasn't, how has it survived this long? But, you know, when you get the whole picture, it's really far more complex and disturbing picture than most than the Sunday school version. That's all most people know. Yeah. Do you think that it has to do with people wanting to believe that there is perfection somewhere? Because it's obviously hmm. not on Earth. That's a good question. I think what it is is that people want People want something to look up to, and I think they don't know a lot of non-religious role models. I think people want to have a model to pattern their lives after. I think that's, that's a very simple and easy, you know, what would Jesus do? That's a very simple and easy way to decide on a moral philosophy. It's honestly a lot easier than sitting down and thinking it out for yourself, which is really hard. But I think in the long run, people do themselves a disservice when they think that all the answers can be had in one book or one religious tradition or the teachings of one philosopher. And all I have to do is find that one perfect pattern and shape my life after that pattern. I think it's much more rewarding, even though more difficult, to figure out morality for yourself, to reason out right and wrong. I think, I think people can do it. I think it's not, it's, not as, um, it's not as frightening as most people think it is. I think what they're, what they're not used to is having to make that effort. Right. Death is a big factor in, in this discussion. Uh, most people are not happy with the idea that we're going to die. Mm-hmm. How does one face death as an atheist? Or at least, how do you face death as an atheist? Because yeah. I imagine it's different yeah. for everybody. <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, I think a lot of people have this um, incorrect view of death that comes really from religious ideas that people who are dead are suffering somehow, that they know they're dead and they're unhappy because of it. And you know, obviously to an atheist that's not true at all. Death is just the cessation of consciousness, which is not something I look forward to because I enjoy my life. I, I find a lot of happiness in being alive. I'd like it to continue. But there's nothing inherently scary about death because death is not like anything. You know, it's there's no more reason to fear death than there is reason to fear going to sleep at night. You don't remember unless, you know, when you dream other than when you dream, you don't remember what happens while you're asleep. You don't have experiences or notice the passing of time. So death, in that sense, is no more unpleasant, no more scary than the idea of a dreamless sleep. And I think, you know, maybe that's a philosophy that not every atheist will find reassurance in. But I think it should help to know, and this is something that a lot of ancient Greek philosophers like Epicurus taught, that death is something you will never have to experience. You will never have to know what it's like to be dead. So I think it's more important to use your life to the fullest while you have it. And in fact, the finality of death is what gives you the incentive and the reason to live life to the fullest. Because if you know that after you die, you'll just go on to another world and continue to exist, really kind of takes the meaningfulness out of this life. It kind of says that in the long run, what happens on earth doesn't matter. And if there is no other life, then that that philosophy results in a terrible, tragic waste of the one chance that is all we ever get. Yeah, that's really very, very different from what most religions 
say about death, that death is a transition and all this kind of stuff. Um, there are a lot of people who believe that if there is no afterlife, then it, life has no meaning. And that's kind of mind-boggling to me. But uh, I, I have heard that even, you know, on a personal level. I've had people with oh. sort of horror in their eyes tell me this. There is no point in life if there's no afterlife. Yeah, I've heard that too. And I think it's one of the big things that pretty much every atheist hears and that probably stops a lot of people from being atheists. Um, there's a chapter in, this, in my book where I talk about how I think, on the contrary, atheism gives life a much deeper and more meaningful sense of wonder because knowing that you're alive, that you get this incredibly rare and precious chance, this one slice of eternity to, you know, to use and to spend as you wish, uh, really makes, because life is so fragile and so finite, that really makes it far more meaningful. And the other thing I would say is that if life is not intrinsically meaningful, then it doesn't matter how much of it there is. If you go on to another another existence that is infinite, but unless there's meaning in life every moment, then adding more meaningless moments to your life will not change it. An infinite number of zeros added together is still zero. Um, you have you have to recognize that life is meaningful in and of itself, that our choices are meaningful, and that it matters uh, what we what we do with our lives, how we choose to spend our moments. And I think that's at least as true for an atheist as it is for a theist. Maybe Something more. that you about the allure of religion is the fallacy of mystery. Could you explain that to us? Uh, sure. The fallacy of mystery, I think, is the idea that understanding something makes it less important or less interesting or less significant. And they use that for atheists a lot when they talk about our view of the mind and of the emotions, that if you believe that your mind and your thoughts are just chemical signals buzzing around in your brain, then that means that they're not real. The only way they're real is if there's natural mysteries we don't really understand. And I say I don't, I don't believe that at all. I think understanding how something works doesn't make it less real or less meaningful. Because if you could perfectly simulate an emotion, well, then that emotion is real. A perfect simulation is the same thing as reality. And I think on the contrary, it should give us a deeper sense of wonder and awe to really understand how some of these supposedly mysterious past processes, you know, things like day and night, the change of the seasons, disease, life and death, things that people always used to think were these deep, incomprehensible wonders we've now explained by science. And that doesn't make them less meaningful or less beautiful. It doesn't mean we can't appreciate them. It means we can appreciate them more deeply because we can understand them on deeper levels. And I think that is kind of the view that atheists should take of their own lives as well as the world around them. What does atheism have to offer for those who are thinking about leaving their faith? Um, well, there's a chapter in my book called Into the Queer Air, where I talk about the stories of people who have deconverted, who have become atheists. And I think the, the most consistent element you find in them is just this exhilarating sense of wonder and freedom they get when they leave religion and they realize that for the first time in their lives they can think for themselves. It's kind of scary and kind of disorienting to people who aren't used to it, but it's really an amazing sense of power to know that you're in charge of your own destiny, that you can make up your own mind, and that you don't have to listen to the, the written decrees or the spoken decrees of people who are long dead or people who just claim to wield authority over you for no apparent reason. I think it's that, that sense of freedom that is so often underestimated. I think one of the people I quote in my book says, these feelings of joy that I got not an exact quote, but these feelings of joy that I got when I became an atheist, I thought this was what you were supposed to feel when you joined a religion, not when you left it. 
it's that, that's, that's a great line. And it's that sense of exhilaration that I think this is really something that's underappreciated that I wish more people knew about. You actually lay out four uh, stages of deconversion that most people go through, you found? Yeah, I found there's a pretty consistent pattern in these stories. Um, the first, you know, obviously the first one is just being a religious person and thinking that you know all the answers, that you know your direction in life and that you're happy. But usually some event will, in these cases, some event will happen that precipitates doubt or crisis of faith. Maybe it was some important prayer that went unanswered or witnessing hypocrisy or corruption in religious institutions you chose to trust or just not being able to come up with a satisfactory answer to the philosophical arguments against religion. And that, that crisis of faith kind of leads to a period of darkness and despair for a while where, where people feel like everything they thought they knew and could trust is falling down in pieces around them. And it's, it's kind of a scary feeling at, at first. I don't deny it, but I like to say, you know, the light will come back on. That after a time, you start to realize that your, your thoughts are taking a new pattern and that also there are people who've walked the same path before you and that you can follow in their footsteps. And maybe you can find that some of the solutions they adopted will also work for you. And just coming in contact with this, you know, growing secular community with other veins of atheist thought produces that, you know, that feeling of exhilaration of freedom that I mentioned before. And it, it really is surprising how many deconversion experiences fit this pattern, except that the more um, powerful and the more numerous the secular community becomes, the more we can help people who are going through this process, sort of help that stage of, of darkness and disorientation uh, be over as quickly as possible. And how do you think the atheist community is doing? Because one one thing that I've seen is kind of a shift now between people who believe in a strictly definitional sense of atheism, that atheist atheism only means that you don't believe in God, and that's all it means, and that other than that we have nothing in common, and uh, hmm. a kind of more atheism plus social justice, what some people are calling a plus. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the, the dictionary atheism is true. That in some sense, the only thing that defines it, that unites us by definition is lack of belief in gods. But I think once you get past that kind of simplistic view, that most atheists have more in common than we, than we think or may realize. And I think that's not really surprising. I think we should expect that for the reason we should expect science to work. Because if there's only one world that's independent of us, then we should expect that if we're, if we're thinking along the right lines that our thinking will eventually converge. And I think just as that's true in science, I think it's also true of morality. And I think there are objectively true and objectively false moral principles. And I think that as we sit down and think about these things and discuss them and reason them out, we should expect that our moral ideas will eventually start to converge. And even though it's not strictly true that all atheists are social justice oriented or all atheists are liberal or progressive or pro-choice, I think more people share those ideals than is commonly acknowledged. And in particular, that's just because when you discard certain religious ideas, there's really no justification for all kinds of moral, of bad moral thinking. Like the idea that gay people are somehow wrong and sinful for existing as they do is really an idea that you can only justify through religion. So it's no surprise that most atheists are in favor of equality for gay and people. Um, and I think the same is true for feminism as well. But I think a lot of the arguments for the inequality of women are fundamentally religious in nature. And I would expect that as people give up religious ideas, they will be more in favor 
of granting equality to women in every way that matters, you know, social, cultural, economic. And I think the atheist community itself is starting to coalesce around this idea, too. I mean, there's a lot of fights, a lot of internet flame wars, obviously, but I think the more we talk about it, the more we are learning that people really do have these ideas in common and that we can work together to advance these social justice ideas in addition to simply arguing for godlessness. You've been in the atheist community for a while. Do you find that all of this infighting um, among atheists has something to do with the Internet? Is it worse online than it is in person? Or is it just a, a part of the, the growing pains of the atheist community? Uh, I think the Internet does contribute to it to some extent because anonymity allows people to say all kinds of, of hateful things that they would never say in person. But I think the Internet is really only laying bare these fault lines that that have existed for a long time. You know, the first wave of atheists were mostly white, mostly older men. And I think there, there are good reasons for that, because those people kind of have the privilege and the social station in life to break free of one prevailing religious idea without you know, suffering too much for it, because they had some pre-existing power. But I think as atheism becomes more accepted, we should expect that it will become um, you know, younger, more diverse, more gender balanced, it, it will draw in people who in the past had too much to lose from publicly associating themselves with such an unpopular idea. I think it will come to look more like society in general, and I think that's definitely a good thing. Do you think that the influence of religion, at least uh, in the Western world, is diminishing? Oh, yes, there's no question about that. I and mean, I think religious religious belief in Europe in particular has already declined to such an extent that it's almost unimaginable, you know, even just a couple of decades ago, how, how weak it's gotten. And I think America is taking a little longer, you know, the United States, North America, South America. And I think the developing world is a little bit behind the curve, but I think we're catching up. I've heard a big part of it is that as nations become more well-educated, more industrialized, they have become more um, economically healthy and have a stronger social safety net, that people see less need for the consolations of religion. So I think economic growth and development is definitely, and increased education as well, for obvious reasons, is definitely a trend that's driving wider adoption of atheism. I mean, America, uh, the United States, at least the um, generation that's younger than 30, what's called the millennials now, is the least religious generation in American history. And other global polls, poll, uh, the Wynn Gallup poll a couple months ago, have said that you know atheism is on the rise in virtually every country in the Western world. Some, some more so than others, but the, the trend lines are really remarkable. And I think even just a couple decades ago, we would not have guessed that atheism could grow to the extent that it has. And I think that's a very encouraging sign. And I think things are only going to get the numbers are only going to get better for us from here on out. What do you think the most mistaken idea about atheism and atheists is? The most what, sorry? The most mistaken idea oh, that people have. Oh, the most have. mistaken idea um, I, I think the most mistaken idea is the idea that knowing the difference between right and wrong is inextricably connected to belief in God, and that if you give up belief in God, then you must also be giving up ideas of right and wrong. And I think this is not a new idea. This is the same idea that has been thrown at social justice and reform movements throughout history, that if you abandon some popular, you know, cultural prejudice, X, Y, or Z, and that must mean you're giving up belief in morality and, and right and wrong as well. You know, we heard this about the abolition of slavery. We heard it about giving women the vote. Every time people said, well, if you, if you change the way things are done, then that must mean you're completely giving up 
right and wrong, and you'll abandon society to chaos. And of course, atheists are, are hearing the same thing, that if you don't believe in God, then you must not have any guidance of how to be a good person. And I think this prejudice will, will just prove itself to be wrong. It'll just run up against the weight of the evidence that atheists are really no better or worse than anyone else. We're, we're people just like everyone else, but that we do believe in good and evil and right and wrong and that we can tell the difference. And I think the more that people know and get to know atheists and know that they know atheists, the more they'll see that this prejudice is unsustainable. If people want to read your book, Adam, where can they find it? Is there a print version available? Is it an ebook? Uh, print an ebook. If you search for Daylight Atheism on Amazon.com, you will find it. Or you can uh, go to my website, which is daylightatheism.org. Quite easy to remember. And there will be a there will be a link on the sidebar to uh, where you can buy the book. On all we have all the ebook platforms. We have a paperback version as well. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Adam. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. You have been listening to an interview with Adam Lee, author of the new book, Daylight Atheism. This is your hostess, Annie Sepukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism. See you next time.